I think a lot of people know that uh, advanced airway management and intubation in EMS is kind of a hot topic. And I think one of the really important things that we have to talk about is uh, clinicians is if we're going to continue to do all this high-speed, fancy, cool stuff, we have to be able to support that we're not harming patients and we're doing good. And there's really only one way to do that, and that's with the information that comes out of patient documentation. So documenting entitled carbon dioxide in the discrete field and not in something like the narrative becomes incredibly important as you start going up in scale and want to be able to prove that we're not hurting people when we intubate them so that other people don't come in and say, maybe paramedics shouldn't be intubating. Here you on eight. Here you on eight. Okay, you're clear. Stand by for your base. Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm Ross Orpit. And I'm Matt Mendez. And today we're going to be talking with Ben Fisher. My name's Ben Fisher, and I currently work for the National EMS Information System. And I was a Denver paramedic for about eight years. And then I have a master's in public administration and a graduate certificate in applied statistics. And this this is going to be the most highly rated episode of EMS cast you guys have ever had. Ross, today we're kind of talking about the future and the future of EMS. And I think the way to frame this conversation is this is a key component of the recognition that paramedics are closer to advanced practice providers than they are to truck drivers. In other words, this is a department of health job and not a department of transportation job. Yeah, I think paramedicine and pre-hospital medicine is moving forward. And I think there's a big push in advocacy for us to become professionals and not just technicians. And I think what we're going to talk about today is a big step forward in how we accomplish that. And this is something that's been around for a while, but I never knew existed when I was working. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners don't know it existed. Um, but we're going to be talking about what happens to that, that patient care report after you hit submit. All right. Welcome, Ben. It, it sounds like your job is the bridge between what happens practically on the streets and how do we make sense of this scientifically and from a data standpoint. Um, and I think the temptation would be to just assume that you are a documentation Nazi, but it sounds yeah. uh, like that's yeah. unfair and your job is a little more complex than that. So uh, why don't you talk about how this isn't just about documentation. Yeah, so I, I, I appreciate that. I am a paramedic, so I am incredibly sympathetic to uh, you know, some of those concerns. Um, I think in particular, this, this is not about documentation or the sort of documentation medical legal aspects. That's kind of another topic for another day. Um, this is about how do you scale up the information, not in one EPCR, but in a lot of EPCRs. So even if you looked at a stack of 20 EPCRs, all of a sudden it becomes harder and harder to pull uh, information out of 
you know, 20, 50. And then when you start getting at the national level, we have something like 140 million. And so you start, you know, seeing those effects amplified. And so it's, it becomes, you know, more and more important that we're able to pull useful information out of those records as it starts to scale up. So what is, what is Nemesis and and how does that kind of help us do what you're talking about? Yeah. So Uh, The National EMS Information System is kind of where all EPCRs go at the the end of the road. So I think um, actually a really important thing to discuss is a lot of paramedics and EMTs probably don't know what happens to an EPCR after they click submit. Uh, Maybe they understand that it goes to their agency or their billing uh, company, but it also goes to a state repository And from the state repository, it also goes to this national repository. So it travels kind of up the the federal food chain um, and we get less and less information. So the agency could collect, you know, shoe size if they wanted to, but that may not go to the state level. And then some of the things that go to the state level may not go to the national level. But the national level uh, is funded by NHTSA's Office of EMS and it's uh, the National EMS Information System can use all of this data to drive big EMS policy at the federal level and then also conduct research. And, uh, you know, I know research seems kind of like an abstract thing to the field uh, provider at two o'clock in the morning in a McDonald's parking lot when they're down 10 trips, but that's also how we drive change in EMS. And so if you're happy, you don't have to put a C collar backboard on the low mech MVC that got rear-ended in that same McDonald's drive through at two miles an hour. That comes from data, you know, big research programs that use this data. And so it does change the way we, you know, provide care in the field, but it may not feel like it because it can take a long time and it's kind of distant and high level. So I think most people probably don't understand this, that the, the patient documentation that they fill out on the day of patient care doesn't just go to their billing department or their supervisors, but it actually... That data or a lot of that data, not all of it, but a lot of it goes to the state level and then to the federal level. How did how did NEMSIS come about? Yeah, so right after the uh, September 11, 2001, um, there were some preliminary programs to kind of create this uniform data set. And that really materialized with some of the funding and some of the discussions that happened after September 11th. Uh, the first memorandum that a bunch of states were going to cooperate on this uniform data set uh, was in the early 2000s. And then shortly after that, uh, the federal government decided to fund the people and staff to support this uniform data set and say, hey, look, if we're actually going to do big, important things in EMS, we need to have a uniform data standard. We need to get states to submit data to their state data managers and to the national program. You know, how can we facilitate that? And from that funding, it has evolved, and we're now in 2020. We're on the third big version of that data standard, um, and I think last year they collected 43 plus million records, and we have about 10 staff, and uh, continue to kind of support the federal mission from um, NHTSA's Office of EMS. Ben, uh, when I was a young paramedic, all of the old timers hated EPCRs. And, uh, I didn't really care about them either way. Uh, but now 
most of the medics out there are going to be millennials or Gen Z, uh, and it's going to be a lot less uh, boomer paramedics uh, and Gen X paramedics. So I think we have a really good opportunity to convince uh, the people listening that this matters and even maybe turn some of those old timers around and convincing this matter. So Ben, why does this matter? Yeah. So that's, that's like the million dollar question. Um, so I mean, a couple things. So one is we in EMS want to be a respected profession, not a vocation that has a ton of responsibility, continues to do advanced procedures. You know, people are constantly looking at expanding the field to do things like give TXA or, um, you know, pre-hospital field ultrasounds and, you know, all this amazing stuff. And as EMS comes out of its adolescence, uh, one of the big things that comes with that is documentation. When you look at any other allied health profession, the documentation burden is um, still, I think, higher than it is in EMS. I think um, as sympathetic as I am to concerns about unnecessary documentation or this taking, you know, extra time, I think it is only incredibly important to prove that everything EMS does in the field makes a difference, is important, you know, deserves to be treated as a, a, you know, valuable third profession. And, um, you know, I think uh, you you can no longer just say your exceptional clinical care is in the narrative. So if if this is, you know, that important on the back end, I guess, how should we start viewing our own responsibilities with regards to creating this chart? Continuing to do what EMS field providers do uh, on a day-to-day basis and document thoroughly, accurately, you know, in the appropriate ways is really important. And I hope that kind of understanding that other people are looking at this data um, drives home that importance. So just to provide a couple examples um, at the state level. So I work for the Arizona Department of Health Services in their state office of EMS as well. We use this data throughout the pandemic because we, you know, we all know that if you're going to start seeing something, EMS is the bellwether to see it. So if we're seeing a bunch of influenza-like illness, that data becomes incredibly important at the the state level. And, you know, we're working on some reports right now that are going to go to um, congressional testimony and then the Office of National Drug Control Policy in the White House for opioid overdose. Hopefully understanding that when you're sitting in the McDonald's parking lot at two o'clock in the morning, down 10 trips, and you really don't want to be documenting anymore, other eyes are going to be on your trip. What you do matters. You're driving you know, local, state, and federal policy with your EPCR. Uh, and I know that seems abstract and distant and kind of high level, but uh, I hope me kind of highlighting that helps you understand that uh, what you do matters and you should take the time to get it right, do it well, do it thoroughly, and do it accurately. Yeah, Ben, it sounds like you are advocating for um health professional level documentation, not department of transportation level of documentation. And I can really uh, empathize with that. But what I want to ask you next is there are two players in this that probably have the biggest influence. There's the medic running the trip, and then there's the supervisor level, leadership level of a department. Uh, What's one thing the medic running the trip can do on their next shift to contribute to this extremely important um, database and national research movement? 
Oh man, that's that's a good question. Is it so, is it to fill out uh, the non-narrative sections as accurate as possible? Is it to always transmit the life pack? Is there something on your end you're seeing that's just a quick, easy fix that we can tell people to do? Uh, quick and easy. I don't know. I mean, I think using the individual drop downs uh, and and understanding them is huge. I think my, my ask uh, maybe is less of uh, one thing they can do to the EPCR and maybe more of a, um, you know, understand why they're doing it so that when it hurts really bad and you don't want to be doing it, you you understand why your supervisor says you've got to put this in the appropriate drop down so that when your supervisor comes to you and says, hey, I need you to write an addendum to this trip because you forgot to, you know, use the correct drop down, you know, why? Um, I think that that why will hopefully make it a little bit easier on both ends for the field provider and the supervisor who's having to ask. I've been in that role. It's not always fun. And one huge example of that is C-collar data. So it sounds like what you're alluding to is that people taking the time to to contribute to accurate data, the biggest downstream effect of that is that we don't have to see collar someone who sneezed during a car accident. That highlights a one really good example of where research has definitively changed practice for spinal motion restriction. And um, I think the, uh, you know, being able to see how your practice has changed from being able to document well um, is super important. And you can find that research. I think some other examples are, you know, Entitled CO2, stroke alerts. What would you say about the supervisor or maybe departmental level? Is there is there something out there that you, that you think people aren't doing that they could be doing? Is it transmitting a life pack so that it auto populates these EPCRs? Is it um, educational pushes on what the the research drives are coming from Nemesis? Is there is there anything you think that could really have an impact uh, immediately on on these crews and, and these agencies? Yes. Uh, so to all of that. So I think um, some of it is, um, you know, automation where it can where it can happen. So importing CAD data in so you don't have to populate times, importing uh, automated data collection from um, life packs and uploading that will make everybody's life a little bit easier. So I think your message of we really want to take this specialty and move it more from a vocation into a profession that we're not just technicians that we're healthcare providers and healthcare professionals. I think that can really hopefully resonate home with a lot of paramedics and EMTs and make them realize why this is so important. And so when that data gets extracted and it ends up in your guys's office, what, what happens with it then? How, how does that turn into research? How do people access that data to do research, to make changes in the field of uh, pre-hospital medicine? Almost everything we do is uh, public and you can go to the Nemesis website and look at all this stuff at a really high level. There's still some restrictions to get below the state level. So you could also ask your state office of EMS for some of this information. But on our website, we have a bunch of dashboards that talk about national level um, performance measures. So a group called NEMSQA, the National EMS Quality Assurance Alliance, maybe, uh, has created some quality measures and they're looking at national level data for that. There 
uh, is a public data cube, which is a weird term, but it's like a giant Excel pivot table. And you can go in and see national level data within the past two weeks. So if you wanted to see how many intubations there were from 2017 to about a month ago, you could log in and look at like 80,000 intubations or however many it is. So that's there. And, and that kind of, you know, takes me back to a, a different point is when you hit submit on your EPCR in the ambulance, right now the fastest time is seven minutes before it hits the national database. Nobody else does that. No other healthcare data sources. I mean, except for like DoorDash, that's just not a thing in healthcare. Uh, so the fact that we're able to get that data at the national level so quickly, and then you can log in and look at it on our website uh, is pretty huge and uh, has gotten a lot of attention from researchers and other federal stakeholders who want to be able to look at these data sources and we have like real time data. All right, so going back to kind of how else people access it, um, we also have a static research data set. So every year we close the data that you guys work really hard to submit and we push that out so that researchers can publish uh, studies about it. And it's not just EMS and EM researchers. I was totally unaware until I came to work there, uh, some of the really kind of interesting stuff that's going on. So there are health economists who have looked at when Uber comes to a town, do ambulance volumes decrease? Shocker, they do. And they did some really sophisticated math to kind of show you know, when they started becoming available and what the ambulance volumes look like. Um, there are uh, policy researchers and researchers totally outside the emergency medicine field that are using this data to do some really valuable stuff that I never would have thought EMS data would be useful for um, that has big impact. So I think that's super huge. And then I think the other one that's important to talk about is you know money. So all of this data comes back to sort of funding and resource allocation stuff. If you don't have data to show what you're doing and why you're doing it, and how you're doing it, uh, you know, no one's going to continue to fund those programs. And so I think, um, you know, at the federal level, they look at those things at the state level, they in particular, they look at these things. And it's become, you know, increasingly important because of some of the issues COVID has kind of highlighted. And so I know in 2020, a lot of people are looking at, you know, what's happening nationally with EMS volumes and how are EMS agencies being affected by the pandemic? If somebody wanted to access this data, say they were interested in some sort of research project in pre-hospital medicine, how would they go about doing that? Is it, is it as simple as, as accessing the website? Do they reach out to somebody on your staff? Yeah, uh, pretty easy. On our website, we have a couple different tabs. So the um, the cube uh, is got a login and password for the public to use right there on the website. You can just go there today and log in and start poking around. Uh, we also have a, links to a bunch of YouTube videos with tutorials. And then for the static research set, there's an online form that you fill out that gets routed to us and we're turning them around in about two weeks. Um, I kind of caution people, it's a lot of data. It's 135 gigabytes and it's 44 million EMS activations. So that includes cancellations and other stuff, um, but it's got everything. So if you wanted to look at hypoglycemia calls, it's got a vital sign table with every vital sign for all 43 million EMS activations. It's like 160 million rows of vital signs. 
And you can go through and find every vital sign where they took a blood sugar and it was less than 60 and go back and find out all the other associated information. It's anonymized. Can't find out patient information, but you can find out everything else uh, associated with that call for every blood sugar less than 60. And all you have to do is fill out that online form. We'll mail you a USB key with uh, the first year of data on it and you can start poking around. That's pretty amazing. You know, I think in medicine, one of the most pivotal moments in medicine in my mind was this shift in emphasis on evidence-based medicine, where we stopped just kind of like making stuff up based on our own anecdotal evidence or based on what our friends told us or what we were handed down from the teachers above us. And and pre-hospital medicine is an extremely difficult area or has in the past historically been a very difficult area to study. So it's pretty amazing that we suddenly have this huge data set with with way more data than we could hope to have or collect in a lot of like our hospitalized patients. Um, so I, I think, I just think that's pretty amazing. Yeah. And I, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head. I mean, our care is now being driven by evidence research. You know, we can say what really is best for the patient. And I think that's kind of the next big, big leap. When I started as a medic, they said as a last resort, put a tourniquet on and maybe, <laughs> and maybe even then don't do it. Uh, and, and you have to, you have to write the time you did it on their forehead. And now, uh, data has moved us to doing the right thing for the patients with tourniquets and everybody knows how to use one. And we're trying to make the whole world know how to use one. So I think that's yeah. awesome. Uh, Ben, what does the future look like with all this? The ideal future, Ben's ideal future. What does that look like? Oh man. So I think, uh, linking outcome data and getting it back to the paramedics is the next really big thing. I know as a paramedic, I always wanted follow-up. I always wanted to know what happened to the patient. Um, so being able to link our EPCR to a trauma registry or um, a claims database and being able to, you know, in a privacy appropriate way, uh, get that data back to the clinician to say, look, here's what happened to your patient. They you know, were admitted to the floor, they, you know, your uh, primary impression was correct, you were right, your interventions made a difference, um, and potentially their final outcome, like, hey, they were discharged to rehab or, or something along those lines. Uh, I think that is invaluable to making EMS better, because it tells us if what we're doing is helping or not helping. Um, and then that also has downstream effects, because now you've got EMS data in these other relevant fields. So instead of the ICU doc having to go find a PDF copy of a EPCR from like three weeks ago that may or may not be available to them, that's all available uh, down the line and they know exactly what happened that precipitated this event from the 911 call essentially. You know what all this makes me think of is that saying that if you've seen one EMS system, then you've seen one EMS system. And I wonder if that used to be very similar for hospitals prior to evidence-based medicine. And, and certainly there are unique challenges to each community, but that's, that's the case with hospitals as well. They, they have some nuanced differences, but now with the advent of evidence-based medicine, I feel like across the country and across the world, we're practicing more similar based on a standard of care. And I wonder if we don't see that shift start happening with, with EMS and pre-hospital medicine as well. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, I think we're starting to get there. Um, 
And I hope that this data certainly only helps kind of drive that uh, conversation in a good direction. Ben has put together a great uh, snapshot with pictures about a lot of what we talked about today and how to access the website, where to go to Nemesis and what it is. And if you visit our website at emspodcast.com, you can see all that info in a blog post. Do your drop down boxes. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and, and love them. <laughs> Learn to love them. What am I supposed to say? Uh, something about the future of EMS. Uh, okay.